Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If you're interested in purchasing a used 1990s Chevy Corvette or investing in a hot new real estate venture, Ghostwood Estates, this is a podcast for you. Today we'll be talking about episode 8, The Last Evening. Again, I dislike this title. Alright, roll bumper music. <laughs> but, as we established, the or as we found out, we haven't established it on the podcast yet. The because we know nothing, make. apparently, yeah. Title. I maintain that we know at least two things each. Yeah. But as we discovered, yeah, these are mostly fake titles, uh, neither Lynch nor Frost assigned titles to the episodes when originally produced. They were just numbered. But when they were broadcast in Germany, they were given titles, and then the titles were then retranslated back into English and adopted for the episode listings after that. And in fact, the title Miss Twin Peaks, which is episode 21 of season two, is a fan title because in Germany, uh, 21 and 22 were just broadcast together. So yeah, these titles are sort of made up. I don't know yeah. how we didn't know that before, but which like, oops, is interesting. I mean, because I I wouldn't have thought about that, but I guess like when this was originally broadcast, it's not like they needed titles for anything, right? Like they just were on TV. Like you need titles for if they're on a DVD or if they're on a streaming service. But true, until that happened, they didn't need to title them. But stuff, I think I, I think things episodes still had titles for some shows. I don't think that's totally unheard of. Yeah, no, but I think that, like, you wouldn't get away with not titling episodes of a show now, necessarily. Because they have to, they, like, go up almost immediately on some kind of streaming service or the network's website or something. Yeah, that's true. I just think, like, you could, like, nobody would have noticed that they didn't have titles necessarily. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, so that's interesting. I'm I'm curious who in the German translation office for this assigned the titles and why. Uh, yeah, that'd be something we could have dug into, I guess. But instead, we're just bringing you the same information that you could have found out if you had just clicked on that note that is on top of every single title on Wikipedia for Twin Peaks that says they're not real. Oops. Uh, but hey, I think we're lovable because we make mistakes. This is the season finale. Episode is, 8, yeah. The Last Evening, directed and written by Mark Frost. So Yeah. It is a lot. There is a lot that happens in this episode. I actually thought this one was kind of short. It's It sped along real quick for me. Yeah, but it's a lot packed into a really short span of time. Like, the other episodes, the episodes that feel longer are the ones, I feel like, where less happens. True, true. Okay. Um, well, I guess let's get into it. I'm excited about this. We open on what is obviously a poster of palm trees at sunset on a beach with ocean sounds before we start to pan over and it's more and more clear this is a poster and the darker twin peaks music picks up 
intermingled with a little bit of sort of tropical slide guitar. And we see Donna and James breaking into Kobe's apartment, picking up right where the previous episode left off. Mm-hmm. They find a box of drink umbrellas that are labeled with notable events. Yeah. Which I kind of love. It's a great... That's like such a, a good character detail. Great little collecting habit. Very cheap and yeah. uh, personal. The, it yeah. mentions it does it does require you that you always order a drink that comes with an umbrella in it, which I mean Jacoby certainly does. Yeah, I think he's got that covered. That rather limits its practical applications for other people. Oh well. I was looking at it though. One of the events is Men on the Moon, and I the moon landing date is wrong. I was maybe it's a different moon landing. I or was it? the same year well it was like yeah the date is like six or the date they have is july 8th and i think the moon landing is july 20th 21st so for apollo 11 uh i don't know Hmm. weird maybe this is just a slightly alternate universe where it happened a little bit earlier that would explain something maybe jacoby knows about the secret first moon landing. that's true i was thinking i was like the russians didn't no, it's not like that doesn't make sense. So I yeah, I don't know. Uh maybe Men on the Moon is a band that he happened to see right before and that was just marking when he saw the band play, not actually the moon landing. It's just coincidental that it happened like within twenty days. Yeah, yeah. Probably that's it. Or again, I stand by Jacoby knows about the secret first moon landing. Yeah. It would explain his season three plot a lot more. It's true. I, I think meh, I think all of these options are not only viable, but not necessarily mutually exclusive, I think. Maybe all of them. Uh, Donna discovers a switch in the office that like specifically plays diegetic, tropical, <laughs> like chill slide guitar music and can cycle between different tracks, I guess, uh, which is amazing. Yeah. Don't really understand this technology, but okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'm not sure exactly why they decided to give Dr. Jacoby this amazing pad. Um, but it's all great background characterization. Again, I don't know why it matters, but it's great. But Donna remembers that Laura mentioned a coconut, and she finds a coconut. I'm surprised there weren't more coconuts she had to, like, dig through. I feel like she would have a couple. And... They find a tape and the half of the necklace, which has been missing for the whole show now. And then they they leave right after, pretty much. It's interesting, like, at some point later in the episode, it comes up that James says something like, how'd he get the necklace? But wouldn't they, I mean, I guess... I think it's Donna. She's still suspicious. Oh, right, yeah. But wouldn't they recognize it as the same half that James buried? Yeah, I think they're trying to figure out how he knew where to find it. Okay, yeah, and why. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I was thinking that, again, I was thinking that this was more like more of this nonsense about the killer having half of the necklace. Still kind of is, but yeah. Jacoby, speaking of which, shows up at the gazebo and spies maddie through the bushes looking like laura he is very affected by that and at that moment he is jumped and attacked by a master and i like sort of 
unseen assailant dressed in black and is beaten down, watching sort of helplessly as James and Donna rejoin Maddie and drive away. And there's a zoom in of Jacoby's eye, and it's used as a transition into a roulette wheel at One-Eyed Jack's. Yeah, Ed is still just hemorrhaging FBI money. <laughs> yeah, but Coop is counting cards at Blackjack with Jacques Renault. I mm-hmm. was trying to figure out if Ed is still wearing his wig. I can't tell because the wig is just exactly like his hair. Yeah. It seems possible that he's not, but it also seems possible that he is, and it just does not matter at all because the wig just looks exactly like his normal yep. hair. So- <laughs> Uh, I think he is, though. I think the wig is a little bit fuller on the top. Okay. And, like, in the front. It just seemed less curly. I mean, maybe they went and styled it, which is, I guess, how you're supposed to use wigs. But yeah. I don't know. Who knows? But yeah. Not important. Uh, Jacques, Jacques picks up that Coop is counting cards, and Coop passes him the chipped poker chip that they recovered and says he knows who Leo is and offers to buy Jacques a drink. So sort of tipping his hand here, but as we'll see, he has a plan. Yeah, um, and again, I just need to reiterate that this is Cooper's best look in the whole show, is this tuxedo. It's very good. That's all. <laughs> Blackie, uh, in a different part of the casino, tells Audrey that she is going to be broken in that night since the owner is coming to visit. And has her pick a card, and Audrey chooses the Queen of Diamonds. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about how people don't recognize Audrey. I guess I'm trying to figure out how uh, Blackie doesn't recognize Audrey. It occurs to me the simple answer is that she just has never seen Audrey because, like, why would she? Yeah. But, oh man, like, considering that you, you see Blackie during this scene, like, watching the security cameras of Coop, and you're just like, Man, like, ah, she's a bad... She's not good at her job. (laughs) Like, she has eyes on this guy who's, like, talking into his sleeve the whole time. The the daughter of the owner of your, like, prostitution casino has managed to infiltrate it. Like, ah... Yeah. But, I mean, again, I, I think you're right. I don't know why Blackie would have ever seen Audrey... She might not even know that Ben Horn has a daughter. It's I true. Mean, it's not like it's something that would come up as a reason to, like, keep the fact that Ben owns the casino a secret that, like, you know, he's married and has a family. Because, like, there are a million other reasons, the first of which being, like, again, even if this is not illegal in Canada, it is certainly illegal for Ben Horn to own it. So. Yeah, we're yeah. still working off our, our totally unfounded assumptions on the Canadian legal system at this time. But, um, so what, as it turns out, Cooper has decided that he is going to sort of bluff with Jacques and says that he is actually the money behind Leo's operation and says that Leo's sort of been, uh, not fully up front with Jacques and cutting him out of some of the money. And Cooper uses details of the case to convince Jacques which is risky, but it, it pays off because he offers him ten grand for a job across the border at the water processing plant, and Jacques acquiesces. Yeah, and I guess it's 
we've talked in earlier episodes about the sort of uh, hierarchy of the this cocaine smuggling operation, and this scene kind of implies that Jacques answers to Leo a little bit, mm-hmm. or that that Leo is in a, a more informed position, or a you know position of a little bit more power within this this operation because it like Jacques is willing to go along with the idea that there's something that behind this that Leo's not telling him and that Leo would have would be the one who would have the contact that was financing it. Now I'm still I'm trying to remember how Jean Renault, the third brother, actually figures into all this, but that's for later. Yeah, as we've discussed, we can never remember the actual details of the Not a thing. We mentioned it a lot on this podcast that we can't remember it, but God, it comes back every time. This episode, too, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, totally. Yeah. Hmm. No, and I've seen, this is the the third time I've watched this episode now, and I still just do not remember these kind of finer details of the plot. Which, I don't know, I don't don't mind that really about the show. I think that's interesting. Uh, One of the things that Jacques does let slip, again... Like, how have these people not been caught by now? They're so <laughs> incompetent. But You mean Jacques and Leo? Or literally Jacques? anyone. Anyone. Uh, or how has Coop not gotten found out that he's an FBI agent in this casino, considering that he's constantly talking into his wrist? Uh, Jesus. Again, I offer anyone. Anyone. Uh, but he says, Cooper asks about how the poker chip got broken, and it turns out that while they were having sort of a drug orgy party with Laura and Ronette, it seems a consensual one. Uh, yeah. The bird got out, Laura was complaining, and Leo put the poker chip in Laura's mouth to shut her up, and she bit down on it mm-hmm. and broke it. Uh, yeah. And I have to say, I really like the way that... Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I, I really like Cooper's reaction in this scene because... It's, he's, you know, I think he's done a very convincing, like, his bluff to Jacques is pretty convincing. Oh, yeah. In in the way that he kind of inhabits the character of this, you know, person who's financing Leo's cocaine operation. Um, and then you do see that he's, like, clearly affected. But we only see that in, like, really, like, mostly close shots of Cooper. And then you see him kind of go back into that, that bluff with, with Jacques. Um, mm-hmm. so i really like that no i think he inhabits the again i don't know how shock so easily drawn into this ruse but yeah he manipulates him effortlessly and he does command a sort of dark he's not yeah. sleazy he's playing like i don't know a scary it's guy who's like very like, cold and and uh, Jacques is off put but he doesn't seem to be suspicious he just seems to like yeah yeah. Well, and I think we've talked about this too in in terms of characters like Hank and Leo, where there's this contrast in terms of the sort of the, the higher up you go in the Twin Peaks criminal underworld, um, the more people get like very cold and calculatingly scheming. Yeah, as opposed to like, you know, somebody like Leo who's very temperamental and and I, so I think that, that Coop really inhabits that that cold and calculating persona which is mm-hmm. interesting yeah i well it plays into my uh, my my doppelganger theories and the the duality that is present in the whole show and especially in season three 
with characters like Cooper. So uh, yeah. Shelly is doing her hair in the sink uh, yeah. at her house, and she's attacked by Leo from behind. Yeah, yeah she like sets the sets the gun down. I assume she's washing her hair in the sink so that she doesn't have to take a shower. Mm-hmm. So that she's not, basically to prevent exactly this from happening. Yeah, it's pretty quick. And Leo just says, what, I don't know, she she broke his heart or something. Like crazy that's Leo that's later. Oh, is that later? I apologize. Yeah, that's later. But yeah, so he, he attacks her from behind. He pulls the towel away. She reaches for the towel. Okay. Um, and then she tries to grab the gun and he grabs her before she can get it. Uh, God, I, hate this, I hate this scene so much. Uh, it's This is another one of those. I mean, they all make me anxious with these. Or this is another one of those, like, Shelly, Leo scenes that just... Ugh. Audrey sits and waits in another room of the casino. And we cut away to Truman asking Andy about Lucy. They're sitting in a cop car waiting at what we can assume is the water processing plant. Yeah, uh, Truman Andy's... said... Uh, Ugh, women. Ugh, or... women. And he says, the trail is cold, as they say in the <laughs> law enforcement business or whatever. Uh, which I yeah. would never use that phrase in this but, situation, but I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah but I, I love it. It's kind of like Andy trying to, I don't know, make a joke and like mm. have like interpersonal workplace banter with Yeah, use the vernacular Truman. of his uh, yeah. vocation. Yeah, to voice just... his vociferous, vehement, no vehicular vexings. Jacques arrives at the water processing plant, and they move in to arrest him. Uh, all the cop cars pull around him, but uh, because I guess everyone's bad at their jobs, Jacques struggles and grabs an officer's gun. Yeah, so and... they're about to... He puts his hands on the car, they're about to cuff him, and... He grabs the officer's gun and points it at Harry. But a shot rings out, and Andy has dropped him with a non-lethal blow, or non-lethal blow, non-lethal pure, what's another word for shot? Bullet. Bullet. But the bullet's not the, yeah, I want the action, though, like, not the object. Whatever, yeah, a non-lethal bullet to the shoulder. Um, oh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. So yeah, yeah, we had joked about how Andy becomes a badass earlier, but yeah. he does. He actually literally does. Yeah, yeah. No, he's very. I like that. I like this little mini arc of him being, like, dropping his gun and it going off when they go to arrest the one-armed man and then, or interrogate the one-armed man, I guess. And then, um, yeah, he has this just all that practicing that Cooper assigned him pays off. Moment of greatness. Yeah. Well, Andy has a couple moments of greatness actually, throughout yeah. the show. True, true. But I, you can tell this maybe, is made maybe in Maybe Andy is really the, the hero of Twin Peaks. Well, I, I think there's evidence <laughs> to suggest that he's certainly one of them. Yeah. But you can tell this is made in 1990 because if this was made in 2019, every single cop there would have immediately just peppered Jacques with bullets. <laughs> Would have been a goddamn pincushion. Uh, <laughs> Donna and uh, company, Jameson and Maddie, listen to Laura's tape for Jacoby. And it is the same, in theory, tape that we heard Jacoby playing at the end of episode two, Traces to Nowhere. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not the same tape. 
I noticed this. I went back and listened. And not only is her cadence different on certain things, but her there's certain words added into the Jacoby one originally that are not in the actual one. So her cadence in the Jacoby one is much more emotional, uh, sing-songy, that lustful, strange, you know, almost high lore that you hear on some of these tapes. Mm-hmm. But the one that uh, they actually play is much more normal sounding. So I thought that was interesting. I guess suggesting that I'm not sure if this is a continuity error on their part or just something they edited in a certain way because that's what they thought sounded better. But it's interesting because it, it seems like it's suggesting that Jacoby was, that scene was unreliably presented to us, that he was sort of mentally adding in interesting stuff like she doesn't say in this one she doesn't say oh like i'm so glad i met you doctor mm-hmm. she doesn't say oh, that yeah, in the jacoby one she does so interesting again yeah. this may have been unintentional in terms of like what the implications are of episode two it may have just been done for practicality but i, I, I like think it's really though. cool I like, yeah i think even if it wasn't intentional I, I like that reading of it so yeah the idea that he is reading in a much more yeah, lustful and sing-songy cadence and, and yeah, words yeah. that just simply weren't there, cries to him, rather than just sort of her more general statements that she makes in this one. Yeah. So, oh, that one is a curious curious bit to me. I have no idea, and I would I would love to be able to confirm that, but I don't think there's any way to do that. Yeah, I don't know. But, I'm, yeah. Maybe I'll eventually get a, like a book to <laughs> respond back to us on the, on the Twitter. Yeah. Again, there might just be like a book that has all this. That like or a couple books that people have written, but eh, who needs a reading when you have podcasts like ours yeah, to give and... you vague and unverified facts? So poor poor James here. He says that he's okay with hearing it, that he's actually glad he heard it, but it's pretty rough, I think. Yeah, because this is the tape where she says to Jacoby he's so that dumb. James is sweet, but he's so dumb. And yeah. she kind of explicitly she even says that is this yeah she says that she was almost killed a couple times by her mystery man but that she really got off on it yeah so and the mystery man is confirmed to be leo because she mentions a red corvette Mm -hmm. so nothing we didn't sort of already know but now these characters are aware of it yeah so speaking of leo he's got shelly tied up at the mill and he's rigged some kind of homemade timer thing to ignite a bunch of gasoline that he's spread around mm-hmm. and i think he sets the timer for about an hour hour and a half to i guess give shelly time to think about what she's done and he says that he's gonna kill bobby briggs as well during that time yeah yeah and then this is the part where he as he's leaving he yells at shelly like you broke my heart which i don't know it's a very obviously like like <laughs> ridiculous line but also a very convincing one for a character like leo so Mm -hmm. yeah kind of the stereotypical abusive boyfriend sort of yeah well husband but oh yeah you're right it's so weird it's so like i always forget that they're both so young you're just upset because people our age keep getting engaged (laughs) i know it's happened it happened this morning terrible terrible stop it guys please Anyway. Yeah, we're, we're 57. This is too young. <laughs> Hank makes a case to Josie 
that considering the amount of time he spent in jail and the risk he's taking now, he should be getting paid a lot more than they have agreed upon. And it's yeah, kind of a cool monologue. Guess... He's about, it's about, you know, what is the value of our time on this earth? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a yeah. little mustache twirly, but it, it's good. I like it. Yeah. I, and yeah, so the original amount was uh, 90 grand, I guess, which, it's, you know, it's a fair chunk of money. But yeah, he has a whole speech about what that equates to. And then this is where he says that he went in on the charge of, the details of this I did not entirely understand, so maybe you can explain this to me, that he went in on the charge of vehicular manslaughter so that he wouldn't get implicated in the murder of Josie's husband. I Okay, so I'm not, he reveals that, yeah, Josie's husband died in a shady boating accident and that he went on lesser charges, but I don't know, I assume the implication is that he was involved in his murder, but I also don't know. So, I mean, I guess... Because they do specifically say in the court scene with him that it was a random vagrant, and it was driving, not a boating thing. Okay, so, yeah, this is what I don't understand, is how they made that work. So here's... Do you have a theory? Maybe. Because I have nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know if this is spoilery, because it's really just the, like what the implications are here but right so like i assume the implication is that right the reason that he's talking about how much how how much his time in jail was worth to josie who's now paying him is i assume because this was all part of a a larger plan between the two of them that involved him murdering her husband right yeah but i don't know like, it seemed to me like he was saying that basically the vehicular manslaughter was... The, the only way it makes sense to me is so that he would... Like, that, that that was an alibi for when Josie's husband died. So that, like, that was a setup to make it look like he had hit a guy in his car at the time that he was actually murdering Andrew okay. Packer. Yeah, is that, that his makes name? sense. Yeah, Andrew so, but yeah, I the logistics did not make a ton of sense to me here. Because the way he says it makes it seem like being in jail was his alibi, but that doesn't make any sense because he was in jail. So, I don't really know. Hmm. Well, actually, I don't think he negotiates for a higher price. I think they just, he just, like, relents after a while. They call it even, they seal it with blood. And yeah, he's, got, like... he's got antlers behind his head uh, from, oh, yeah. like, a, a deer-mounted back there and it's not subtle no i really like josie in this scene too um because she's very she's also for a while very calm and cold towards him as he's negotiating um and just keeps repeating we had an agreement but then by the end you can see she's really visibly shaken um and i I like that i like that detail of her her character that she's that she is able to for a while put up that very calculating exterior but that's clearly not all that's going on mm-hmm. she's not detached in the same way that some of the other shadier characters are so Catherine manipulates pete into helping her look for her missing ledger basically by bringing up the love they once to... had yeah is this supposed to read as like entirely like a farce yeah i think so okay I w- I'm never sure with this scene. I really like, I think Catherine and Pete have a really interesting dynamic, especially 
in later episodes, once they get into their bad season two subplots, the subplots are bad, but I think that they're, the interactions between their characters are interesting. Um, so. But yeah, he's described as the, the nimble lumberjack who could scramble up a tree like a cat, and she's the boss's daughter from the house on the hill. So he agrees to help her look and says that he's not involved in helping Josie pull anything shady. And I guess maybe part of why I have trouble reading this scene is like, he is very, like, his character is reacting very genuinely, and she's putting up a really good act. So it's it's hard to, I don't know, that's maybe for me why it was hard to know exactly how to read this scene. I mean, yeah, I think he's I think he's kind of getting played, but, yeah. but he also, but again, he also, he think... also might be kind of aware of it, and it and doesn't just... matter because that's their dynamic. So that's, I think, kind of what I mean. Like, I don't think that okay. she's, I don't think that this is like a genuine touching moment between them, but I, I don't think that this is just a straightforward, like, she's pulling one over on him. I think there's a degree to which he's sort of going along with it and just being okay with it. Um, because I think that, as we've seen in some of the earlier episodes, there are these moments where, despite the fact that it seems like he's really just, like, she really just entirely pushes him around and plays him there are some moments where we see him sort of pushing back on that a little bit um like when he does take the the key and help Josie mm-hmm. get the the ledger um initially and so yeah I just I think that there are there are some interesting layers to their dynamic and again I think that the plots themselves are not great but I think it gets played out in interesting ways as the season goes on um, or next season goes on I guess right Hawk Ed and Andy recount andy's heroism to the other officers who i guess confirmed exist we've seen them (laughs) before but yeah Yeah. every now and then a couple of police are out there who aren't named but they're in earshot of lucy who kind of walks away flustered and at the behest of hawk andy follows her yeah into like the little kitchenette he like closes those little curtain doors yeah a little partition thing like you know churches and police stations are the only places i've ever seen those and he makes his move. He goes in for a kiss. Yep. But she reveals that she is pregnant. Yeah, and then he just walks out looking very... Uh, Stunned. Yeah. I don't know how the rest of the police who are standing maybe 10 feet away on the other side of a maybe the, very maybe. flimsy screen didn't hear any of this. Maybe they did. Because she snaps at them and goes back behind her desk so maybe she thought they did here um she answers a call and sort of takes no nonsense from it because they they asked if to talk to truman she says if truman's not here they'll have to talk to her and it's bobby masquerading as leo who tells her to check out james and says that he is an easy rider some not so subtle code for smuggling cocaine and the bike i guess it's bike it's not very subtle, but it is weirdly good code. It's specific yeah. enough. Um, Cooper interrogates Jacques in his hospital bed, and Jacques freely admits that Laura was at the cabin and that he took the Flesh World photos, but that they were apparently Laura's idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that what happened that night of Laura's death was that he and Leo fought. Because I love... I love that line where he says, uh, Cooper asks 
what they fought about. And Jacques says, he broke a whiskey bottle over my head. Mm-hmm. And Cooper goes, why? And Jacques goes, I don't know. That's why we fought. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. It's a great line. It's so I good. really, yeah. And I love his delivery here. And he says that he, he, he was bleeding everywhere like a stuck pig. And that he used Leo's jacket to sop up the blood. And it, he then passed out, woke up the next yeah, morning. Yeah, outside, passed yeah. out. Leo was gone. Uh, the girls were gone. And he had to walk home and doesn't know anything else. And he seems truthful about this. I think part of the reason the line delivery is really good is because the character is supposed to be being honest here. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Yeah. And um, I think it, it comes across well because he, you know, he delivers the lines in the very, like, conversational and colloquial like when he says he's bleeding he was bleeding like a stuck pig um he's just very very casual about it you know i mean i i think he knows that like cooper already kind of knows what happened so i think i don't think he i think he thinks he probably doesn't have anything more to lose by being honest yeah and he doesn't know anything about what happened in the train car so or even that the train car exists yeah okay yeah right um they check in on Jacoby while they're at the hospital. And Here we go again. Hayward. Doc Hayward is a cardiologist. I, I, moving on, moving on. He had That's a, it. That's all. I'm just, <laughs> he I'm had just... a heart attack, apparently, along with being attacked, which I guess triggered it. And Hayward uh, relays his seemingly impossible sighting of Laura to Cooper and Truman. Or is it just Cooper? I, I think it's both. Okay. While they're tossing their library, Pete finds his old yearbook and reminisces about, I guess, a hot babe in it. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of gets scolded by Catherine, but she gets a phone call from Hank uh, telling her that the ledger is at the mill in Drying Shed 3, and Mm -hmm. that they'll let her know about the terms before hanging up. So she grabs a gun and takes off. Yeah. Which, man, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Well, and it's so it's interesting. Like, I'm not really sure what she thinks Hank's position in this is at this point because she knows that Ben and Josie are scheming against her, but I don't think she knows it's Hank. Oh, okay. That's also probably true. Yeah, I think I think we do, but it's just I think it's a mystery voice to her. Yeah. So, speaking of Hank, he is at the double R trying to endear himself to Norma, and says that he. Makes, wants to make the diner like take off and expand mm-hmm. new horizons. Yeah, but he also is very, um, I don't know, sort of humble and... Yeah, repentant. Repentant is, yeah, mm-hmm. a good word when he says that, you know, he sort of uh, acknowledges that he, he says he talks talks too big or something like that. And he's, you know, trying to, to prove that he's really changed and that it's not just talk. Yeah, he snags a kiss out of it, actually, too. Yeah. Norma seems surprised, confused, maybe mm, a little bit off-put. But not, like, entirely, though. No, no. It's a mix of emotions. I think that's Mm -hmm. good. Interesting. Uh, Quarter in the interesting jar. That was a pen, but close enough. Probably worth about a quarter in this economy. Uh and we I actually think you see... should have to have all of these jars on your desk as a way of preventing you from making a new jar every episode because eventually you'll just run out of desk. 
It's not a bad idea. I actually did have my coins around here. I don't know where I put them. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, so we cut to... No, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. Easter egg. We see a Say No to Ghostwood poster in the oh, background. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm not sure if this is officially the first Say No to Ghostwood thing we see. I do know that they crop up very early, so I might have been one before this. This is one I noticed. It's just in, sitting around like near the counter of the double R, so... Well, well, seeds of the future, I guess. We're selling there. Ed returns to find Nadine. Oh, we skipped over a whole thing. It's did fun. we not? I was going to say, did we like not mention this? Oh, no. It was like my last... Oh, son of a gun. It was the last thing. It was the last note on that page, and I totally just went right over it. Oh, Oof. Yeah. All right, you take this one, I guess. Well, so right before the scene where Hank is making the case to Josie that he should get more money. We saw Nadine at uh, her and Ed's house. Um, she's in like a, looks like a prom dress or something. It's like very satiny and pink and it's got big puffy sleeves. She's like sitting on a blanket on the floor and she dumps two bottles of pills, two different bottles of pills into a bowl and she's got a glass of water and then she just very quietly says goodbye. So Ed, when he gets back, from one eye jacks presumably um walks in and he sees her on the floor and initially he just sort of seems to think that it's like some one of her weird things that she's doing right where she's like in this fancy dress on in a blanket on the floor um and then she he walks over and sees the pill bottles and um, she's unconscious and he calls an ambulance and i really like this scene i think that this is He's very clearly very distraught. Um, he, like, picks her up and holds her and is like, you know, stay with me, don't do this, don't do this. Um, and so, I don't know, I think especially on the heels of the Hank and Norma scene, it's really interesting because it would be very easy to have, and, and in some other places and other episodes it does seem like, you know, Ed and Norma are both just kind of in these marriages that they've entirely detached from but i think that with the scene with hank and norma we see that norma is kind of is still very detached from this relationship but it is at least a little bit conflicted and then this scene with ed i mean really does show like he does i mean obviously this is a a very shocking and intense moment but like his you know affection for her here is very genuine um, and very heartfelt and very moving. And so I just, I like that they've had this, in, in having this really intense moment, we do see that he, like, how much he does actually care about her. It's just that he doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. really want to be married to her. <laughs> but... I, I agree, actually. I said this before, but I felt bad since the beginning now that we originally sort of skipped over a lot of Nadine's stuff and just wrote it off because I, I don't enjoy those scenes particularly and I don't think that her character comes anything great but at least in this first season I do agree that the dynamic between her and Ed and Norma and then Hank and the comparisons and the differences between them are actually really really good and they succeed fantastically in this portion of at just having meaningful character arcs that are almost totally unrelated to the thrust yeah. of the show which are things yeah. like like james donna they don't have that at all um, no. they are very much involved in this and these are just ancillary 
things that are happening and they're good. And I'm, I'm mad at myself that I skipped over that scene today. I just can't give that damn woman credit, it seems. Sorry, Nadine. Yeah. No, and then I think, too, that, like, you know, it, it would be really easy to sort of write off Nadine's character um, and write off, especially in some of those earlier episodes, just sort of see her as, like, Ed's crazy wife who he doesn't really care about. But, um, you know, this scene especially, but in other places throughout the show, too, you know, I think they really undermine that assumption and, and show that, you know, again, there is a genuine, like, that he does have some genuine affection for her, um, and that, you know, it's not just, with with Norma and Hank, it, it really seems like it's just sort of a, a complacency on Norma's part, where it's just much easier to, especially when Hank's not actually around, it's just much easier to stay married to Hank and, you know, mm-hmm. ha- have an affair with Ed. But I think with, with Ed and Nadine, um, it's it's not just that complacency. Like, there, he really doesn't want to hurt her. So, yeah, I really like this. Yeah. So, careful. <laughs> hmm? Oh, just something clanged. I thought you hit something. Yeah. No, I, I did, but I just... Oh. I thought you meant careful in relation to my commentary. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you're verging into dangerous, like, grounds there, for sure. <laughs> uh, it's raining now as investigators pull up to the police station. And just something I noticed, they've got one of the themes. I couldn't, I couldn't name it out for you, sorry. But uh, it's one of their more percussive themes. And they've got rain foley going on, too. And the way they mix it in is really, really, really cool. I really like that. And there was a fine attention to detail that I appreciated at a craft level. <laughs> but uh, Lucy tells Coop and Truman that Leo Johnson called. And she passes on the message that he left, but also says that she heard a clock striking and that it was the clock at Easter Park. So Coop basically says to get boots on the ground, go investigate easter park watch leo's uh home residence uh, of course easter park was where bobby was calling from not leo so that's not going to work at all but yeah, but i like again lucy's attention to detail here yeah yeah i agree good that she picked up that small thing and was able to immediately recognize where it was yeah yeah james shows up right then distraught and urgent to tell sheriff Truman something important which we know is that he has found this tape um and coop at this point pulls him aside having read the note that lucy passes him gives the note to truman to investigate the bike and basically takes james off to question him about this uh cocaine that will turn up right then as truman is leaving and doc hayward is leaving leland shows up uh, and asks if it's true that they found a suspect both truman and hayward tell him to go home but it's an odd scene because he asks hayward are you going back to the hospital and doc hayward's like no i'm not i'm going home and then he leaves yeah he leaves and then leland turns around and is like hospital and it's a dramatic zoom in and it's supposed to be that like oh he's figured out that the suspect must be at the hospital but he said the word hospital not doc hayward right but given I don't want to include spoilers here. Given what we know about how the rest of the show plays out, this kind of made sense to me. 
I agree, but it is a. I, we had the same thought as to how that that does work, but yeah, eh, it's an odd. I like it though. I think it's it's it is odd. It's not odd enough that you know that it's like really obvious. I think okay. It's odd I don't in a subtle way. It did just strike me as the first time I watched it, because I was making these notes for my in my second rewatch, and I was writing down before the scene happened, like Doc Hayward accidentally spills the beans, but he doesn't. Like Leland just convinces himself that's the right place. Yeah, which uh, again, I, I like that. I I mm. think think it makes sense, and I I think it's I don't I didn't I also didn't read it as a realization, but just as sort of a decision. Okay. So maybe that changed my reaction to it. Is that I didn't think it was like he was realizing that the suspect was at the hospital. I think he was sort of making a decision about what he was, where he was going to go. All right, fair enough. James hands over the tape to Cooper and tells him that they're looking for a red Corvette owner, which yeah. Cooper already knows. And Coop tells him to cut the shit as Truman walks in. Uh, Coop sort of says that he knows that James is involved with the Jacoby stuff, and then Jacoby had a heart attack, and then Truman plops down the cocaine, and Coop says that they're going to have to deal with that first. Yeah, and that he's he's been patient with James so far, but that he's going to need some better answers, which I think is a fair response. It's unfortunate because James is being set up by Bobby here, but I mean, I think that that's a reasonable response from Cooper. Especially given that, yeah, James and Donna and Maddie just decided to break into Jacoby's office and investigate on their own. That by yeah. itself is a bit of a Yeah, I guess choice. Cooper doesn't know at this point about Maddie. So I'm not sure how he would necessarily know about James's involvement with Jacoby. But... Well, but Jacoby saw James and Donna. Oh, did he there. say that? I don't know if he says that. I don't think he does, but I mean, I think that that might be a... Okay. That could have been just in the police report. Yeah. Okay. I'm good with that. Uh, Bobby arrives at the Johnson house looking for Shelly, but is instead met with an axe-wielding Leo looking properly yeah. crazed and bloodied. Yeah. Bobby really tries to, like, he is, you know, kind of calling out for Shelly, and then Leo says Shelly's not here, and then Bobby tries to do his normal Bobby thing where he just, like, plays it off and is like, man, Leo, I'm glad to see you, like, as if he has something important in relation to their criminal involvement. And Leo's not it, buying it. Yeah, this gets Bobby nowhere this time. I feel like in, like, I appreciate it in the last two episodes that we've seen both Bobby and Audrey kind of come up against their uh, the limits of their ability to sort of talk and charm their way Met out of their things. match. Yeah. So. Yeah, because just as, well, luckily for Bobby, just as uh, Leo is about to cleave him in half, Hank <laughs> shoots him through the window, and Bobby takes off, leaving Leo, it looks like, to, to bleed out and die. Oh, I, god damn it, I missed. What? I just keep, I keep missing, missing points. Oh. So, hey. no, not eh. <laughs> all right i'll finish this one before i go on but Leo, oh right you're right yeah. that is yeah so all right we're backing up yeah because it's important that this is relevant to the scene because ben horn and the icelanders are at one-eyed jacks they're about to sign the contract 
Um, and then Ben gets a call from Hank, who I guess has the number from for One-Eyed Jacks, which is interesting. And then Hank says that he's going to take out Leo. And I guess this is all, I assume, in relation to the fact that Ben hired Leo to burn down the mill. Um, yeah. That this is all interconnected. Yeah, and, and they're just taking care of loose ends. Ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's why Hank shows up to shoot Leo. Yeah. My only question here is that, like... No, but I want to finish my point. Hold up. Originally, oh. just that as Leo dies, presumably dies, should die, as Leo should die watching... Uh, or should die. he dies watching Invitation to Love and it's Montana being shot and then sinking down like in shock yeah. and pain. So. And is it is it Chet, the guy who was like... Yeah, I assume this is a rerun, right? Because you've already seen this of Montana getting shot. Have we? Yeah, because Nadine cheers for Chet shooting Montana. Oh, that's right, that's one. right. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I guess this is, a, this is a rerun, so we don't need to discuss it too much. Uh, for our invitation well, to listen. Yeah, it's but interesting it though because <laughs> when Montana showed up, you uh, we talked about him as kind of the like and parallel to Hank, but then here he's parallel to Leo. No, I thought it was no, he was parallel to Leo. You said Hank. No, because he because Shelley shoots him right as it cuts to Chet shooting Montana. Yeah, but when Montana shows up and roughs up Chet, you say that because it's a rough biker type showing up, it's supposed to be Hank. No. Oh. Well, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so. Yeah, so Bobby just runs off. You know, there are mul- there's uh, multiple levels that metaphor is going to work on. Yeah, uh, that was my point. Fine, <laughs> that was literally my fine. point. Uh, <laughs> you were undercutting it by being like, no, it was Leo the whole time. <laughs> All right. Well, Catherine, um, Catherine arrives. Wait, wait, no, I was going to say, I just, um, the again, I'm sorry, this is one of my nitpicky things. Bobby has now left a bunch of fingerprints all over the <laughs> scene of Leo's presumed murder. This comes that back never there, becomes it? an issue, does it? I thought it does. I don't think it does. No. I don't remember the plot of the show though, so maybe it does. We'll I'm see. I'm saying it does. Again, I'm just right. thought I can just say whatever I want because until we start getting emails being like you're wrong, <laughs> what are people gonna do about it? And again, I want emails, so. I'm going to say it does come back. It's actually a major part of season two is Bobby's implication in Leo's murder. Yeah, uh uh-huh. You don't know if I'm wrong. Uh, I think you're wrong. Well, Catherine arrives arrives at the mill and to to find a gagged and tied up Shelly. She takes way too long and the timer goes off and it ignites all the gasoline trails and sets the mill ablaze. Yeah, I also like this though. Because, I don't know, I just, I like how Catherine sort of responds to this scene where Shelly's tied up and she's just like, I can't understand you, you have a thing in your mouth. And then she, she takes it out and she asks Shelly who she is. I like, too, that, that she says, when, when Shelly's, like, kind of trying to get, to get free and to ask Catherine to, to cut her down, as, you know, the timer is going off. Catherine says, just kind of stands there, and she says, I'm thinking. And it's interesting because, again, I'm not saying that this makes Catherine's future plotline good, but it does at least sort of hint at it pretty early on. 
she's she's thinking she has a plan here of some kind or she's coming up with one hmm okay that's yeah. true okay i you're right i like that and i yeah. kind of remember what you're talking about so who knows but kind of mirroring this scene someone at the hospital pulls the fire alarm and restrains jacques no before suffocating him with a pillow and there's a lot of cliffhangers in this episode but one that they actually don't tease us with is the identity they pan up immediately and it was leland leland has killed jacques it seems yeah i don't understand though do they just is the presumption here that like if the fire alarm goes off in a hospital that like everybody who's currently in a hospital bed is just like left there yeah i guess right like the cameras get shut off and no one is immediately the hospital is just staff is teleported away and and yeah and they just like if the building's actually on fire then oh well tough for the people who are asleep in their hospital beds yeah this was a bit of a mess on their part but whoops Uh, oh well pete arrives at the mill uh and we see the burning building and it is in fact labeled number three so trying shed three good little detail uh he sees Catherine's car and realizes she probably must be inside there, grabs a fire extinguisher, and even though his other mill workers try to dissuade him, he says, she's still my wife, and goes charging into the burning building. Ben finally signs the deal on Ghostwood with Einar. Sorry, I made a note of that specifically in the earlier one, and I just wanted to get out that his name is Einar. I looked that up. Actually, I was just clever. I just put on the subtitles and got it off there. So. Oh, because it like put up his name. Yeah, because Ben says, Einar, my friend, you're playing on the house. And he gives Einar a bunch of free chips to go gamble with. Blackie congratulates Ben. And he decides that for his own celebration, he wants to see the new girl. Can you imagine if Ben and if this had been the night that uh, Ben and Jerry had flipped for the new girl? <laughs> Would have been a oh. very different scene with Jerry in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, let us laugh as we <laughs> discuss a man having sex with his daughter or an uncle having sex with his niece. No, uh, I'm just... Okay, but I can imagine a scene where, like, Jerry walks in, right, and Audrey's just like, fuck, this didn't go to plan, and just sort of is like, uh, hey, Uncle Jerry, I've sort of... Uh, miscalculated here and he would just be like yeah yeah i see that and then just kind of leave yeah here's a, here's an like, edible uh, exactly all right yeah that's better um audrey is the new girl and she's dressed now in a sort of full queen of diamonds inspired outfit they've like sewn a larger version of the card onto her dress and ben enters and says something ridiculous something very sleazy i'm sure no it wasn't sleazy. it was like it was just stupid it was like um is he quoting shakespeare again something like that you know um all your dreams the summer's night whatever that was just the worst fake shakespeare quote i could have come up with in the moment (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah so audrey audrey sees ben like it's not like he walks in and she like they're like face to face. She's out of sight, out of his line. Yeah, of sight. she sees him, like his mirror. reflection in a mirror. And she's and got a mask like, on, right? Or does she not yet? Not yet. Okay. No. 
Oh, sorry. Spoilers. Spoilers for the next one. My bad. Ruining that, ruining that cliffhanger. But yeah, Audrey is clearly sh- shocked. Although I assume this was what she sort of was angling for, but maybe not. Well, she was probably angling to find out who the owner was. I don't think she expected it to be her father. True. I think I think she's appropriately shocked to find out her father owns a brothel. That's some upsetting information to uncover, even if your father is a shithead. I, I, I wasn't questioning her, her shockedness. That's fine, especially because now she's got to deal with uh, him wanting to break her in. Uh, uh. Yeah. Hey, not my words. No, I know. To close out the episode, Cooper returns to the Great Northern Hotel, and he's feeling pretty pleased with himself. He is giving an update to Diane about the progress and developments in the case, and notes that uh, the Icelanders appear to either have checked out or passed out, as it is quite quiet, and he hopes that within the coming hours they will be able to apprehend Leo Johnson and sort of tie up the rest of this case. He enters his room to find Audrey's note, addressed to my special agent, and receives a call from, it seems initially unclear who it is, and it seems like it's supposed to be a mystery caller, but it appears that it's Andy saying they found Leo Johnson, but Coop has put the phone down at this point because there's a knock for what he believes to be room service. But instead, as he opens his door, while Andy shouts, Coop, we found Leo Johnson, uh, he is met by a gloved hand, a gun, and three bullets slow-mo to the chest, and we hear his body collapse as it cuts to black, and we are given credits for executive producers David Lynch and Mark Frost, and the rest of the credits roll over Laura's homecoming photo, and yeah. that's the end of season one. Finn, Finny, Finale, done. Yeah, I was surprised that Coop just like went over and opened the door when he was so... When he saw that his door was slightly open, he was so cautious and FBI about it that he didn't like even look. But eh, he's day. tuckered out. Yeah, he was just talking yeah. about how excited he was for room service. It's true. Yeah. But so yeah, I the, the phone thing confused me because they do a whole dramatic like close up on the phone and he picks it up and he goes, "Who is this?" And he seems sort of perturbed and he's not displaying any emotion. He's like, "Can this wait?" But then when he puts it down, it's just Andy going, "Coop, Coop, we've we found Leo Johnson. He's been shot." But I don't know why Andy wouldn't have just led with that. Yeah. So did he get a second call that... I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah, no, a little odd. I don't think so either. So. No, it, it didn't make a ton of sense. But yeah, so but it is a big... It's a big. There's a lot of cliffhangers. The biggest one, of course, being like, oh, Coop's just been shot. Shot, yeah. This episode is so intense. Like everything, all of these scenes are very, I don't know, just like high, high stakes scenes. So even the ones that, I mean, most of them do end on cliffhangers, but even the ones that don't, like with Leland smothering Jacques Renault, like that, that's still a very intense scene. It's a cliffhanger of its own kind, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, this episode is one of those episodes where like, I, it's kind of, it's almost like too intense to keep watching because it is like such a high, like I have to be on such a high sort of level of, of energy to, to even watch it. Um, but it's also one where, like, it was very difficult for me not to just, like, let the there the first episode of season two just start playing when I got to the mm. end of this, even though I know what happens as far as how the cliffhangers resolve. And actually, when I, when I first watched it, I didn't realize that this was the season finale because I was, of course, watching it on Netflix. And I was so involved 
and so you know invested in figuring out all of these cliffhangers that I just like immediately hit like enter to play next episode and realized about three episodes into season two that I was in season two mm-hmm. no I, I I've decided that watching these twice once without taking notes and once for taking notes is maybe the optimal way for me to watch these because for the last couple especially I've come away liking it a lot more on second viewing and being able to codify a little bit more of what I've seen and pay attention to more details once I've gone through and just absorbed it once. I didn't like it a ton the first time I saw it. Last night when I watched it, I was a little bit disappointed, mostly because it does end on so many cliffhangers. And knowing that there is a drop in quality in season two, it's a little disappointing being like, Oh, well, now that this is over, they haven't really resolved stuff, and the stuff they're going to resolve, they're not going to resolve that well. But yeah, yeah but, but that drop in quality doesn't happen until halfway through season. That's 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 true. Season. And additionally, just watching through the episode, the episode itself actually really does do a much better job of bringing this all to a head. And I think mm-hmm. it makes sense that it ends on a cliffhanger. And I think it has to do that. I think that is the whole joke of Twin Peaks, and. So Plus, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, a second, if a second everything resolved except for like the if if all of these other plot lines except for the Laura murderer plot line resolved, then no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's it does. You know. I think the show definitely moves further into wacky hijinks the longer it goes on, which is not really what I super enjoy out of it. And a lot of this does kind of get wrapped up in that. But I can't but, fault I can't fault this episode and, and as I said, I think yeah. watching again for the smaller details and and just thinking about this in relation to how it's all built to this point, this is a really solid conclusion this, of a season that is clearly part of what's supposed to be sort of a larger web of yeah, intrigue and, and, and yeah. personalities that's gonna continue to sort of evolve. So and this episode looks a lot better in relation to the episodes that came before it than in relation to the episodes that came come after it, right? Like, I think kind of what I hear in what you're saying is that this sets up a lot of stuff that gets resolved badly. Um, or, yes. Or, but it wraps up a lot, or not wraps up, but brings together a lot of stuff that has been set up pretty well. Yeah, and so I think true. that some of the web of intrigue plot lines that I, you know, and I feel this too, with some of them feel like they're a little bit much in... Season one, maybe only feel that way because we're so oversaturated with them in season two that coming back and rewatching season one, sort of knowing that that's coming, it's, it's a little harder to, to stomach those. Certainly. A couple, I guess, standout things. I really like the Jacques Renault arrest scene. I like that they stage it at a location we have not seen before. I believe it's actually filmed in uh, Burbank. But it's nice seeing locales of Twin Peaks. How do you know it was filmed in Burbank? Because I read the Wikipedia production notes. Okay. Like a good podcast host. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where you get your information. It's, it's always just nice. I, I like when they take us out of the, the sort of rote standard locations and we get an exterior shot. Yeah. Stuff like that. So that was cool. Again, it is cool that they, they catch Jacques Renault and that is a big thing. And then to have him smothered and leo shot yeah they are they're complicating the case as it goes forward as well yeah just as just as they reached you know sort of what seemed to be a breakthrough so that's that's cool that is possibility of of getting answers yeah and in a way that's you know 
if Jacques Renault or Leo were the murderer, were the big bad of this show, I guess, this would not be a super interesting conclusion. So in a way, this teases that there is a larger Something mystery else. at hand. Yeah, so, that they have have somewhere else to go with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Just trying to yeah. think of, like, other things that really stood out to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this does very much feel like a season finale, um, just in its, not just in the cliffhangers, but just in its sort of level of intensity, um, as I mentioned. But I, I really like this episode. I also find this episode really hard to watch because of that intensity level and because of sort of how I have to be engaged with it and focus on it. You know, there are other episodes of, of Twin Peaks that are weirdly sort of like familiar and comforting, even as they are very surreal and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this speaks to some, you know, what I what I find familiar and comforting. But uh, yeah, so I think that this is definitely not one of those episodes. So uh, this is not yeah. something I would just like put on in the background. Agreed. Well, so two things. One, does weirdly count? Does the ad, does the adverbial form count as a weird? If so, quarter. The other thing, too, interestingly, there's, speaking of surrealness, almost none in this episode. This is a very straightforward cop mystery drama episode. Which I think... And David Lynch did not write or direct this, so... Yeah, well... Maybe. um, Yeah, that's kind of clear. I think it's fine, though. No, I think it's... I don't think that that's bad. I just... This is not... This is a very good episode. It's not David Lynch. And I, but I think that goes back to sort of what we've talked about, too, is that there is an extent to which the weirdness can be interpreted as a, a thing that is literally happening, that there literally is this sort of otherworldly force. But it, it also works as metaphor, and I think that this episode is a good reminder of that, that this plot line works on a literal level. You could take the surreal stuff out of it and still have this sort of trail of people that are involved in Laura's death and it would still make a lot of sense. It it would still make sense. It would still be, you could still investigate the case. It's not like the supernatural stuff is Mm -hmm. the only explanation. There is kind of also a real world explanation for what happened to Laura, which I think is really interesting and one of the strengths of the show. Yeah. And just as sort of a, uh, a closing overarching thought for season one is that, as you said, this is not David Lynch, but for all the banding about of ooh, very Lynchy in this and very Lynchy in this, and oh, he's, you know, David Lynch. I think it's cool watching these and realizing that Twin Peaks is not necessarily David Lynch. It is a confluence of a lot of different creators working in a world created by David Lynch and Mark Frost, but who themselves and they might not get a lot of credit for it bring a lot to these episodes beyond just standard david lynch and i really like that sort of there had always been a kind of contentious point in my mind a little bit of a uh, cognitive dissonance of like oh david lynch didn't really make as much of the show as i thought but it's not necessarily a bad thing and you know i think no, I, mark I think... frost and not just mark frost but you know all the sort of writers and directors who do not get executive producer credits have done a lot to make the show what it is so yeah, no, and I think I was going to say that I think that, that sort of just speaks to, I mean, part of it is because it's a, a television show and, and his other stuff is all movies, but, you know, I think that, that that, so that's definitely a big chunk of it, but I think that, you know, maybe speaks to why this was able to catch on beyond 
just David Lynch fans, right? Like mm-hmm. we've talked about that, right? That that Twin Peaks has a much broader appeal than whatever Mulholland Drive or Blue Velvet or um, things like that. So it's just I think that it's clear that they are bringing something very valuable to the show mm-hmm. as well. So then again, David Lynch and Mark Ross had total creative control uh, over season three, and that was amazing. So you know, it what? was amazing, but. But I don't think it would have been, I don't think that would have been what it was, obviously, without no, no. the first two, well, the first season and, and a half. And it's not the same show as, as the, or, you know, the first season or the second season. I think that was something that people initially were resistant to, but I think that's fine. Yeah. That the first season of the show, especially, is its own breed that, yeah, yeah. really was unique well, and is unique in a way that we don't even, that not even it was just, yeah, David Lynch, but this this whole thing well and two i think that the i don't think we would have had that stark difference um between the seasons that were more collaborative and the season that was just david lynch and mark frost had like obviously had all of them just been david lynch and mark frost and i think that part of what the return is doing is is intentionally divergent from the first season of the show um in ways that are really important to kind of the meaning of of the third season. And so I think that, like, David Lynch would not have necessarily been able to have diverged as far from something that had been entirely his own project. Mm. So, yeah. No, I... I... So that's our review of season three. <laughs> Wait, no. Is it future or is it past? Season one? What year is this? I don't know. But that's been our podcast. Yeah. So uh, when we... Uh, when we come back, we'll be starting it on season two. Thank you so much for sticking with us so far. Hopefully now that our protagonist is dead, you'll still want to watch the show along with us. But um, Follow us on Twitter at Northern Live Pod and email us if you want to yell at us for getting things wrong. We're live from the great northern at gmail.com. Cooper's favorite drink is Cactus Cooler. Email me and tell me I'm wrong. Until then. Bye. (laughs)